Welcome to The Turning Point, a podcast for any and all of us who are interested in education in sub-Saharan Africa. This podcast, we'll be speaking with leaders, teachers, and educators from all walks of life, but all of whom have a keen interest in the preparation of our next generations for an exciting future on the African continent. If you're interested in Africa taking its rightful place on the global education stage, or indeed simply interested in having a small window into this crucially important time in African education's history, join us on The Turning Point to hear what others have to say. Um, okay, so welcome to another episode of The Turning Point. Um, I'm delighted today to welcome Dr. Mona Kiani onto the program. And I met Mona at a uh, conference in Zambia recently, the ISAS conference, where she was a keynote speaker, did a fabulous speech about holistic educating, really speaking to the child and really speaking to the students and what they need. Um, Mo Mona is a former maths teacher. She's trained teachers, she's coached teachers and administrators. And she's absolutely passionate about education and all things to do with it. She has a doctorate um, in educational leadership from the University of San Diego. And she's also the 2016 recipient of the National Inspired Changemaker Award, which is given out by Yale University. And she currently serves on the board of directors for the True Human Excellence Institute in Austin and on the board of advisors for Free Fuse. I'm absolutely delighted to have you on the on the show today, Mona. So welcome, and thank you for agreeing to do this. Oh, um, yeah. It's a pleasure to be here, and it's so nice to meet you in Zambia, and it's great that we're getting to connect once again. Yeah, wonderful. Hopefully these connections will continue. You know, I do like to have these continued sort of relationships. <laughs> I, I always quite like to, in these shows, to try and, you know, speak about your story and how you came about you know, your, your sort of, uh, how you came to be where you are. And I wonder if you could just start off by giving us a little bit of a background about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. So I actually started my life in education outside of being a student, uh, in Los Angeles, I was in inner city, Los Angeles, and I decided to go to grad school to become a teacher. And when I was in Los Angeles, I started out with 55 students in a classroom. And so I was a math teacher. I was a middle and high school math teacher, and I was teaching in the hood. And at the time, I got my roster. I was 21. No, I must have been 22 years old. And I got a roster of 55 students. And I said to myself, okay, this makes no sense. I have 35 desks in my room. 55 students on this roster, how on earth am I going to fit them? How on earth am I going to teach them anything with mathematics when the system is designed to set all of us up for failure? And I remember crying. I remember being so stressed out. And I went to my administrator and I said, what should I do? And she said, don't worry. About half of them will drop out by the end of the year. And so that was one of the saddest things to hear, that the expectation was for students to drop out. The expectation was for them to fail. And so I think that oftentimes when we look at the world of education, what we're doing as educators, what we're doing as educational leaders, what we're doing as teachers makes all the difference. Are we expecting students to thrive and are we setting them up for success or are we not? 
And so that really sparked my whole journey in education. And I knew in that moment that although teaching was my ultimate passion, that I would go on to try to influence the system. I would go on to work with schools systemically, with communities systemically. So I continued in my first year of teaching. Uh, just in the first three months, there were two stabbings and a shooting. All of them resulted in lockdowns. And in fact, one of my students got stabbed in the head. And so again, these are things that kind of really informed my experience as a teacher. I then went on to teach in an international private school in uh, Santiago de Chile, which was a very different experience in so many ways of a system that was set up for students to thrive. And still some of the challenges students have universally. They were very well-to-do. They were kids of diplomats, uh, international students, and also students of the local population. And then I returned to California where I taught in San Diego. And at that point, I taught in charter schools that were very innovative. There were schools like High Tech High or the Preuss School, and they were doing things differently. They were looking at how do I disrupt the system? And so getting some time there with a very mixed group of students was also advantageous for me to have a clearer picture of the world of education. So I've gotten the experience in inner city public schools, uh, in elite private schools, in very progressive charter schools. And then I ventured on into tech where I got to be in um, educational technology companies supporting teachers, administrators, and schools at large for systems change. How do we actually change a whole organization in a particular effort? And so I worked in that for the second half of my career thus far, and then began Educate with Purpose, where it started with you know a few workshops here or there, and then grew into being able to help leadership teams and teams of teachers advance in how they educate with purpose. And so I can speak more about that in particular, uh, but that's really kind of the backstory that led me up to the moment in which I live now. It's a it's a fascinating um, it's a fascinating like variety of things that you've actually of schools that you've actually talked in. I mean that I can't even imagine the what it must be like to transition from that kind of a, a, a either for want of a better word a sort of a rough inner city school to the kind of the posh elite of an international school. Uh, which is obviously diverse in its own way uh, and has its own challenges and whatever. But where in, in your personal sort of school experience, where where do you fit in all of that? Because you went from that kind of environment to the international and then back to kind of innovative education. What's your personal experience of education like? Mm, like when I went to school, you mean? Yeah. So I went to a public school. It wasn't a rough school by any stretch of the imagination uh, in California. So I grew up in Northern California and uh, our public schools can be quite good uh, depending on the community, the, um, you know, the tax dollars that fund it essentially. And so I went to a pretty traditional public school. And, you know, one of the things that I experienced in the public school was being one of the few children of immigrants. And so that was a very unique experience. So I think in some ways, I was actually really able to relate to all the different types of environments that I taught in. In the inner city school, what was interesting is all of the students were, um, you know, kids of immigrants or immigrants themselves. And so that was something I could really relate to them on having a primary home language that was different than the language spoken at school. So I could relate to that. Um, and also just not being sure how to navigate the system in a country that's maybe new 
for those families. And so in that way, I was very much able to relate to them. In the international private school, I was very much also able to relate because my family is incredibly international. I come from a Persian background. My stepmom is Japanese. So we have just within our immediate nucleus family, we have, you know, interracial, a great interracial mix. And then my cousins are half this, half that. So we have a lot of languages and cultures mixed together. And so the international school really resonated in that way. And also extremely high expectations. So my dad, my mom, and my stepmom all, you know, come from cultures where academics is your number one priority when you're young. And knowing that putting all your focus in that um, is, is what you're going to be doing from now until you're done with college. So I could very much relate to the culture and the environment in an international private school where kids were expected to go to Ivy League schools, whether or not they enjoyed school or if they knew what they wanted to be for their career. And then in the innovative private school, I'm sorry, the innovative charter schools, I really connected to this idea of being able to constantly question what are we doing and why are we doing it and can we find a different way? The schooling that I went to was not uh, very innovative. So I would say that I maybe connect to that personally the least as a youth, but as an adult, as someone who went into tech, as someone who is an entrepreneur, that is the environment that actually I resonate with the most now. And I really enjoy working with schools who are able to and have the mindset of being nimble and questioning the system and saying, how might we try this differently to get a different result? Yeah, I mean, wow, it's it's, it's it is fascinating that transition, and, and I'd I'd love to explore the kind of the innovative side of education because, as as you know, we both have a common interest there as well. But can you can you give us a couple of wow moments? I mean, you've now moved into educating with purpose, and and I, that transition makes absolute sense to me. You know, moving into being able to affect change on a broader scale. Yeah. Um, but we all develop our own pathways based ostensibly on our own learning experiences and a lot of those are wow moments what i would call wow moments have you got any that you that you collected over your time as a teacher in those three sort of yeah different background different um yeah situations absolutely so i would say in the inner city school this was my the end of my first year teaching i had a student anna who she said to me miss how do you expect me to care about the pythagorean theorem when I almost got raped on my way to school. And I think that was probably the most pivotal wow moment for me because then I started to really question, wow, Anna's really right. If in her environment, she is experiencing things that she cannot at all relate to just a formula that some guy, Pythagoras, <laughs> you know, created hundreds of years ago, then is the schooling system actually serving her or who was it designed for? And is it out of touch with reality? And I think that was one of the, my biggest wow moments that really led to the research I did in my dissertation, which was looking at supporting at-risk students with emotional intelligence. I realized that it's not just the cognitive factors, it's actually the non-cognitive factors of school, the human-to-human -human connection, the environment, the culture of schooling uh, that has a bigger effect on a student's life than simply how are we teaching some of these concepts and could we refine our, you know, our methodology of teaching a bit more. So that was one of my really, really big wow moments. 
I would say in the international private schools, one of my really big wow moments was actually to be confronted with the mental health issues the students were having around parents' expectations and what they actually wanted to do. And so often when we have these Ivy League school, or I'm sorry, um, elite um, high schools that want to trickle the students into these Ivy League schools, sometimes you have this dream similar to your parents of being a doctor, lawyer, engineer, whatever it might be, to bring in the income, to have prestige. But often these students don't resonate with that calling. And so really actually questioning, well, our life's path, do we honor what a student, what a young person might be most called to do? Or are we still kind of in this old traditional paradigm of there are certain jobs uh, that have all the position and power, and then the rest are kind of like, if you couldn't make it to those jobs. And so questioning that and recognizing that mental health issues, I noticed were actually more prevalent in the elite private school than in any of the other environments. And so what does that pressure do? What is living a life that does not truly connect to us do? And how might we capitalize on the strengths of the environment of the cultural capital and the financial capital of the students in a private school to help them be altruistic, to help them fulfill their calling and actually go do great things in the community that are going to help change the system. And I would say in the in the progressive charter schools, one of my aha moments was we don't have to do it the way that it's always been done. And in the innovative charter schools, if you're constantly questioning things like the schedule. Do we have to have blocks that, you know, go one after another with the bell that signals to you it's time to move on? Do we have to silo subject areas and say, okay, now it's math class and now it's chemistry class and now it's English class and now it's physical education? Or is there some model that we can invent that maybe is a little bit more organic, a little bit more, um, you know, uh, mirroring what exists in the work world or in just the natural world beyond the walls of a schooling system. And so for me, the aha moments there was, wait, the only thing actually stopping us from being innovative and progressive is our traditional mindsets about it. Because especially in charter schools, but often in many, many schools, there's more flexibility than we think. And when I work with administrators, I noticed that they say, but we can't do that. And I ask them why. And if I ask them why enough times, they realize nobody is forcing them to do it a certain way. It's because we've grown up in a schooling system. So we think school has to look one way. And so then it is us, it is educational leaders, it is teachers that put those guardrails of it must be done in this, in this square box. But actually, if you start to unpack that, you realize, I have a decent amount of flexibility. Yes, there are certain requirements. There are certain standards I must teach. There are certain exams I must give. But even within those structures, there's more flexibility than one might traditionally think. Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's a whole paradigm change in the way we view it in a sense. And that, um, you know, it's where it's, it's, it's moving from teacher-led to child-led in a way, uh, you know, or student-led. Um, and I love that kind of messy area around that, how we argue those different bits out. I think it's fantastic. Um, but And obviously, this leads very nicely into educate with a purpose. Um, 
So how did, how did that start? Like what were the teething problems? What were the, how were your entry points? What was your driver into getting into that? Yeah. You know, actually, um, I went into creating Educate with Purpose at the end of my tech career because I recognized that the various tech companies that I worked for, while they were doing amazing things, but they were really only tackling one one bit of education, which often is what we can do. It's what is our one bit, one morsel of contribution. But I found that often they were Band-Aid solutions. So for example, it might have been a tech company I worked at that really focused on student engagement. And so the platform might have really supported students in staying more entertained in class. But still, if I'm engaging a student with technology and entertaining a student and keeping them engaged in the work, but intrinsically, they're not actually motivated, the content is not relating to them, they don't actually feel a deeper draw to what we're doing, then again, at some point that will fade. At some point that's going to become the flashy item that is now obsolete and now we need a new flashy item to dangle in front of the students to keep them going. And so I think in all my reflection, working in tech, working in the schools culminated to the point where I said, now it's time for me to get to the root of the problem. And so, this is where Educate with Purpose was born. I recognize that when we are looking at schooling as a whole, we're doing things the way they've always been done and we don't often question. Sometimes we'll question little bits of it, but do we question the purpose? And so Educate with Purpose, the goal is to ask all teachers, all administrators, anyone in the world of education, what is the purpose of education? Why are we doing anything we're doing? Because if you look at the world around us, we can often see the symptoms of who we've raised into adulthood. And those symptoms look like mental health. Those symptoms look like an inequality of the distribution of wealth in our world. The symptoms look like racial tension. The symptoms look like gender inequality and the gender pay gap. The symptoms look like our environmental disasters and us depleting this earth that we live on. And so if this is what we are, you know, rigorously putting students through this education system to churn them out and they are working hard, you know, many of them are working hard to get good grades, to go into college, to get a degree, to get a job, to make money to end up in their workplace, to feel largely unfulfilled. And maybe they make that money, but they're like, why am I doing this? Am I actually happy? I might've reached a certain level of success, but they look around and, you know, often a lot of people these days don't actually even want to have kids because they said, I don't want to bring kids into the world that we live in. And God forbid my grandkids, what's the world going to be like then? So if we already are acknowledging that the world is having this downward trajectory in many ways socially, then how can we go back to the root, which is childhood? How can we look at the way that we are using our systems of education, these formal systems? These are the first formal systems we're introduced to. And could we think about what are those virtues that a child might explore very early on? 
what are those community, uh, what's the community culture that we could be cultivating early on? How might we use our academic discipline to help students understand the world around them and want to be a change agent versus I just want to get this high paying job to further my own success or my family's success. But could we have an outward looking orientation where we're actually seeing how do we as an individual play a role in the community around us and in society at large? So this is really how Educate with Purpose came about is going back to the root of it and noticing that the purpose of education has lost its focus. It's a purpose that's outdated. It's a purpose that no longer serves us. And it's actually, in my opinion, my, my very humble opinion, why we have most of the social ills we have around us today. Oh, I I lost your audio. Oh, oh, there sorry, we go. No, I recall when you actually did the, um, when you did your uh, keynote speech in Zambia, that you actually talked quite a lot about about um, those kind of symptoms that we're seeing in the world at the moment. And and I, I think that resonated with me because I, if if I sort of reflect back over the time that I've been an adult, if you like, mm -hmm. it seems to me that things are getting worse, not better mm -hmm. um, in many ways, you know, things like climate change and all that kind of stuff and, and, and political instability seems to be going in the wrong direction, not in the right direction. So a lot of what you say is, is resonating with me, but how do we, how do you, using Educate with Purpose, um, you know, your company, how do you actually get that message across to school or, or to groups of schools when you go and work with leaders? How does yeah. that work for you? Yeah. It's a great question. So I've actually created a leaders program and this is for educators who want to kind of be a leadership presence in their in their community. And it can also be a formal leader like an administrator or anyone else um, in ed tech in any organization that supports technology. And essentially in this program, we have a few milestones. So if we ultimately want to get to that, that lived experience of changing the purpose of education, first we have to start with the individual. So often this actually begins with shifting our own mindsets. As an individual, how does Mona, how does David look at the purpose, not, not of education, but actually our purpose of life? Why am I here? Why are you here? Why are any of us here? And if I can get clearer on why am I an educator? And then I, that I'll actually kind of rewind to what, what's the purpose of me being on this planet? And so if I can tap into my personal purpose, my mission statement for being on this earth, that's step one. Because if you don't change your mindset, I can give you all the strategy in the world, but they actually say that only 20% of what happens around us is strategy related. It's 80% of it that's based on our mindsets. So that's where I begin this journey with anybody that I work with. And I do online programs and I also do uh, in-person workshops. So starting with changing our mindsets, then once we change our mindset about, you know, why am I here? What am I doing? Then we can step into that leadership to say, okay, well, what is the purpose of education and how can we shift it so that it is focused more on how the individual and the community interplay to self-actualize? And I know at Ubuntu, that's a, one of the big, big concepts is really looking at our togetherness, our oneness, our community. And so it's very aligned there. 
And once we're looking at that new purpose for education, that's a second milestone is, okay, let's create a new purpose. We're going to start by writing it. But if I were to walk into your school, cool, you have a great mission statement with a new purpose. But is that what I would experience if I walked in as a stranger into your school? If you were to ask your students, is that what they would say is the purpose of education? Or would they say, yep, it's still to get good grades and get into college? And so now, once we have our new mission statement for ourselves, our new purpose for the school, now we need to start making some shifts in the way we experience schools. And so this is where I work really closely with schools to examine everything that they do as a leader, as a teacher. So in my classroom, if I have this new purpose, I'm going to now scrutinize every single thing that every structure I have in my classroom, the day-to-day lived experiences, the expectations I have for my students, and I have to measure it against my new purpose. And I ask, does this lend itself to the new purpose? Does this experience, and is it explicit? And if it's if it implicitly lends itself, great. Am I making that transparent? If it explicitly, great. And if it doesn't, it's time for us either to get rid of that structure or that experience, or it's time for us to realign it. And I'll give you a specific example here because I know this is a little intangible. If we ultimately know that as adults, our greatest joy and fulfillment comes from us being able to help other people. I think a lot of adults arrive to this point in their lives. If we're able to do, if we're able to get to this point, you know, at 40 years old, at 50 years old, at 70 years old, we start to recognize, wait, if I can serve my community in some way, if I can serve the people around me, then why is, when we look back at schools, why is service used as a punishment? If you look at schools, most of the time they use you know, a student was late to class, didn't do their homework, skipped school, and now you have to go pick up trash. Now that's your punishment. So we're actually training young people to think about supporting their communities to help other people to be selfless and serve as a bad thing versus as the way we actually achieve joy and fulfillment in our lives. So that would be a structure, for example, that we scrutinize myself with the leadership team or with the educator and say, okay, if we actually want to create, we want to nurture young people to become service-oriented adults, then how what might we make that shift now in primary school and secondary school so that everything in the student's orientation is, how can I serve? How can I help? How can I support? Versus how does this just help me, me, me? So once we make some of those shifts, then some things get taken off the plate altogether, and that creates some space to add in some new experiences. Well, if we want to create this kind of virtuous human being, then how do we create experiences in the classroom and in the school at large to help us get there? So that's the the next milestone. And then the final milestone is beyond going from our mindset, the written purpose, the experiences. Now let's take a look at your actual lessons. So in the classroom, we have lessons daily with our students. And now we're going to scrutinize those and say, do those meet our new purpose for education? And that's actually the bulk of the work that I do is working with teachers as a former teacher myself to really be able to shift their thinking of how can I use these standards I have to teach 
So I'm not saying don't teach the standards. We have to do that. That's a fight I don't, I'm not really into try to change. So if those standards are set, how can I use the Pythagorean theorem to make a difference in the world? How can I use learning about persuasive essays to make a difference in the world? How can I use our lesson around agriculture in science class to make a difference in the world? And so that's kind of that arc that I take um, schools, leaders, and teachers along for us to actually get from point A to point B. It's an amazing process. And, and, And a lot of it, I could kind of see where schools might fall short or where some schools that I've worked in or with, where they actually are hitting one or more of those objectives, maybe unwittingly, not always, uh, you know, not always by plan, but they just kind of have that built into their culture and their ethos. And so um, I know that you were in Africa, and this, of course, will be of particular interest to our listeners, given that the majority of them will be living and working in Africa. Um, But transitioning or bringing about that kind of way of working with a school and bringing that sort of sense of community service. yeah, I'd, I'd quite like to explore a bit about how that can be integrated in African context. Of course, one of the, I, just what jumped out at me while you were talking there is one of the big um, ideological differences, I think, between many African communities and many of the global North communities is the difference between communalism and it, uh, individualism. <laughs> so, you know, the African culture is typically being centered around communalism. So that, that idea of service is maybe more culturally embedded. But I'm I'm pretty interested and curious to know what your thoughts are on how this, how your kind of approach or ideas would fit into that, given your experience that you've had so far in in Africa. Absolutely, and I'm so glad you said that because that's the the number one difference I would say, and I would say, and my experience working in South America was similar to Af- working with in African countries, simply because this beautiful the collectivism already exists. And so you don't have to convince anyone that we should be working together to really support our community, um, which is often one of the, the biggest hurdles in the Western world, right, uh, is we have such an ingrained kind of mindset that it's it's all about me and how do I get ahead. And so just un- unraveling that knot is the biggest task. So I would say working with the population in any African country, I would say African schools are way further ahead than the Western world in this regard. And so my experience has been people get it much more quickly. And so now it's it's less about shifting mindsets and more about, okay, well, what are the tangible strategies to get there? Now, one of the things I've noticed that is incredible with African schools is this concept of looking to the community around them how can the school support the community? How can the community support the school? Right now, as it exists, often a school is thought of as its isolated institution, that it's an institution that educates the students, the parents, you know, support in a way by bringing the students there or, you know, making sure the kid goes to school. But beyond that, they are not necessarily looking at it of, you know, how can I take a very active role? And vice versa. The school is not often looking at how can I take an active role in the local shopkeeper next door? How can we support them? How can we support the farm nearby? How can we support the medical clinic nearby? 
And so if we can actually kind of metaphorically break down the walls of the school and actually imagine school as much wider, a much wider context than it currently is, then we, instead of seeing the school as just for the youth, we see that the school is actually a training ground for the community. Because these are the, the young people who will take over the shopkeeper's shop, who will take over the farm, who will take over the medical clinics. And so if we see all the young people that way, we stop seeing it as this is my child and we see it as this is the village's child, which is a concept that I think the African continent has much, much better than the rest of the world. So it actually makes it a lot easier to break down those walls. But now, okay, if the shopkeeper and the medical clinic and the farmer all, this is a community school that is serving the community, then how can they also be a part of sharing what are the needs? So what I've done with a, a school, actually this is uh, in the U.S., but I think a perfect context of you know how this can be done very easily in you know, the the continent of Africa specifically, is can we bring together the shopkeeper, the medical clinic director, the, the, you know, farmer? And can we ask them, what are the needs? What are the needs of the community? And essentially, we pose this to the students. And we say, okay, if the need of the farm is X, Students, how can you use what you're learning to help meet that need? And can the teacher act not as the holder of knowledge, but can the teacher act as the facilitator to help connect the academic discipline? So what I must teach you about photosynthesis, about uh, um, soil, the nutrition of the soil, the nutrients. How can I teach you about irrigation to help you actually go and work with the farmer to develop the needs of that particular farm. And so this is where we break down the walls of the school. Let's say, for example, I'll give you another example, the shopkeeper, perhaps profits are low. Perhaps we're not getting enough traffic. So can the math teacher and even potentially the technology teacher and even the humanities teacher can they work in tandem with the shopkeeper to do an analysis of their inventory and what's happening with the flow of of products coming in and going out how are these priced are there more optimum prices to sell these products can we look about how marketing and advertising is going on and can our technology teacher support the students Create that bridge between the shopkeeper and the students so that they can make a difference in that particular shop. And can the um, can the humanities teacher, the English teacher, help with, as we talked about persuasive writing earlier, I mean, is not marketing all persuasive writing, right, in, in a different, in a shorter form often. And so if we start to see that actually the community around us is giving us our curriculum, they are giving us the ultimate goal of, you know, if we think about what is successful education, well, it's not just this four walls that build up these brilliant minds. It's a community and a school working together to see how can we use what I'm learning in school to actually make this whole community flourish. And of course, it's, I mean, that's, 
totally making a curriculum relevant for kids. Yeah. Um, if they can actually physically see what they, how their learning is impacting or can be impacting on the communities around them or how the community can impact on their learning, it creates much stronger um, channels for learning, much stronger bonds with the learning that they're taking on. Way stronger than having to attend school and learn something which seems that it's come from, I don't know, a policy somewhere or it's just something that's in a textbook that's been put on your desk. I mean, there doesn't seem to me to be much incentive um, to learning that except good exam uh, grades. Um, and there's no, you spoke earlier about intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. There's no, there's no intrinsic motivation in that. Whereas linking, causing those links speaks right to intrinsic motivation. What, what do you think the, um, okay, let's just say we, we looking forward 25 years in, in African education and, and everything is turned out to be this great kind of community learning kind of style or whatever. What's the roadmap? What does the roadmap look like to get there? Mm. Well, thank you for everything you said, because I 1000% agree. And I think with the roadmap, so a few things happen. When we start to do this sort of kind of integration between the school and the community, what we're also going to notice, besides just flourishing in schools and the community flourishing, we also see that the profession that these students end up taking on are with this orientation of how can I help my community? And so instead of the end goal being a bunch of rich, greedy, you know, professionals, we still have hopefully rich and professional human beings, but with an orientation of how am I using my skills, my knowledge, my education, and the resources around me to help the entire community prosper. And so it really takes those shifts in the way that schools and communities work together to change an entire generation, to change an entire community around us. And uh, and in tandem, the roadmap, as you're asking, so it takes a few things. First, it takes working with mentors, uh, programs, or organizations that are doing this work, because often within a school, we're still in the nitty gritty that it, similar to working with a coach, you know, um, a soccer player, or a football player can be great on their own. Absolutely. They can come with a lot of skills and talents. They can practice, practice, practice. But often it takes the person who's removed, slightly removed, has some experience, can get in, but also out of the game to have the bird's eye view to help navigate the waters of how to get there. So I would say even suggesting to, to work with organizations that can support the school to work with the community to, to get there. But part of what that roadmap looks like is the education of a school, of, of the youth, also needs to be happening in tandem with the education of the parents and the education of the community members. So this is actually the roadmap. So when I work with schools, I lay out a five-year roadmap. It's never done in one year. And we all want a quick fix. We all want the silver bullet, but we know anything that's really worth our energy and our time, it's slow and steady wins the race if we want sustainable change. And so the first year when I work with uh, with schools, the focus is with the leadership. And those five milestones that I had mentioned previously, 
that's kind of the the roadmap that we go through. My second year is working in tandem with leadership. Now I work with the teachers. Because if the leadership is not on board, but we just have a, a few teachers who are like, yeah, I really want to do this. Often that's much harder because then the, the leadership could actually sabotage all of the advancement that a teacher wants to make. So it's really important for a principal, assistant principal, dean, and so on, and director of curriculum, for example, to have that shift of mindset and purpose as well. So the second year, working with the teachers in tandem with the leadership. So it's always a team effort. It's never an outside organization doing the work. We are empowering and building capacity for the leadership team to drive this work. And then that second year for the teachers to drive this work. Now, in the third year, we add on the, the element of parents. If a parent can also understand that they are a part of the schooling system, that they're, you know, often they're the shopkeeper or they're the, you know, someone working at the clinic or working on the farm, and they're personally invested because their child is at this school. So they're the first line of community, uh, of the community members that we bring into this process. And they are personally invested because of their children. So in that third year, the parents and, and capacities continuing to be built with the leadership, with the teachers, and now we bring in the parents. And then that fourth year is about bringing in the other community members. And then finally in that fifth year, it's a transition year of fully building that capacity so that this external team that comes into support can phase out because ultimately we want the grassroots to be driving their own change, not from an external, the external source can support to kind of help build the framework and the roadmap to get there. Um, but essentially, I would say a five-year kind of growth process is what that roadmap looks like. It's fascinating. I mean, it's, and it's powerful stuff. And really, I mean, I, I, I love the vision that, uh, that you're painting, you know, with your words here. Um, if I had to ask you to put your dreamer's hat on, what would you say is the future of successful education? And and what what do schools look like? What is it, you know, what is the how do you envision envisage that? Yeah, it's a great question. That of the future of education is that the school becomes the nucleus of the community, that the school works like co-workers with all of the organizations around it as a training ground for young people to bring fresh solutions to the problems of the community and that they are working in tandem that everyone in the community has their role but they look to the school as kind of being that beacon of light that that school is the driver of change the young people of our world are going to be on the forefront of change in the world they have that fresh, uh, the fresh ideas, the the often heightened consciousness, the um, ability to slough off old traditions for the sake of, you know, just because this is how we've always done it. And so if this school could be that nucleus, the heartbeat of a community, then we have the community working together to make sure this heart stays healthy stays alive, is is pumping with resources and making sure that the flow of this blood is actually getting everywhere and coming back. And so that's kind of the vision. If, if a school can then be the nucleus, then we start to see 
around a school, we can start to see that the community around the school will start to flourish. Governments will start to give resources to any ailing community with the priority being of building up that school. Build up the school, you build up the community. And so with communities popping up and flourishing because the school is flourishing with this orientation towards their community, then we start to spread until we start to see that we're not uh, hurting each other anymore. We're not acting from a place of self-interest only, but really the community interest. And so then we rise, as they say, the rising tide lifts all boats. I think I totally butchered that saying, but you get what I'm saying. So in that way, actually the whole community rises uh, because the school rises. And that's that's the whole um, service about bringing about that kind of concept of service, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I, I Before I, I miss out on saying this, before I forget to say this, I do want to say that the one takeaway that I, I'm certainly going to take, I mean, lots of takeaways, obviously, but the one I'm certainly going to remember is when you said that the school becomes the training ground for the community and not just an isolated um, institution within the community. Mm-hmm. And I think that is actually at the at the um, knuckle of what you just said there, right at the hub of what you just said. Schools become the training grounds of communities. They, they grow that healthy blood supply mm-hmm. in and out of the school, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Just if we if we go back, just take our, our minds back to the African context, just for one last one last discussion point. What what are the kind of key areas do you think, or, or maybe the key yeah key areas that we need to focus on in an African context at the moment to, to to put ourselves on that roadmap? I truly believe Africa can lead the world in education because the heartbeat, the concept of community is so ingrained in who the African people are. And so if we can, if if the African education system can stop thinking of these two things as separate, but see how can you use this incredible culture that really is here to inform the rest of the world of how we can be one and be united. And they can use the, the education system to support that And it all goes back to asking, well, why are you doing school? What is the point? What's the purpose? So this is my question to anybody in working in an African school is what is the purpose of education? And then come back to what's the purpose of your life? And you'll soon bridge that gap. And if if we can do that on the continent of Africa, I truly believe. And coming from someone who's been in some of the top tier universities in the American education system, I truly think that the heart of it, Africa's already got way beyond, you know, most of the continents on the planet. And so if we can just bridge that gap between the purpose and that community orientation, then we've we've got it. Well, I, what, a, what a great note to end off on, actually. And I, and I think I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that there's that heart and that kind of communalism and that co- community that sense of community just waiting to be is it ripe for the for the um, development of education to sit at the heart of development of education. So thank you for saying those things. I'm sure our listeners are going to love hearing that as well. <laughs> you know, give people a real kind of boost. Um, I have one last question. It's a very yeah. short a short answer. That is, 
if you could get a one-line message out to all the schools in Africa, what would it be? My one-line message to African schools would be use your asset of community to reshape your purpose of education. What a wonderful message to end off on. Thank you very much, Mona. As you know, I can carry on talking about this all day, but I'm, I'm sure that people don't want to listen to a podcast that goes on all day. But we should definitely connect again. I've loved having this conversation with you. Um, thank you for giving your time for this. You. What an honor to be with you and get to connect again. And thanks for the conversation. Very enjoyable for me as well. 